Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to be with you. Good to have our members and our visitors and friends with us today. And we pray and hope that you're edified as we continue in our worship. As we turn our attention to the preaching of God's Word, if you would turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 7. The Gospel of John, chapter 7. And we're going to pick up here in verses 25 through 31. John 7, 25 through 31. Let's hear the word of God together. John 7, beginning in verse 25. Now some of them from Jerusalem said, Is this not he whom they seek to kill? But look, he speaks boldly and they say nothing to him. Do the rulers know indeed that this is truly the Christ? However, we know where this man is from. But when the Christ comes, no one knows where he is from. Then Jesus cried out as He taught in the temple, saying, You both know Me, and you know where I am from, and I have not come of Myself, but He who sent Me is true, whom you do not know. But I know Him, for I am from Him, and He sent Me. Therefore they sought to take Him, but no one laid laid a hand on Him, because His hour had not yet come. And many of the people believed in Him and said, When the Christ comes, will He do more signs than these which this man has done? Amen. Let's unite our hearts. Let's pray together and seek God's help as we come to the preaching of His Word. Let's pray. Father, as we've entered into the joy of worship already this morning in the singing of hymns and spiritual songs together, as we have rehearsed the truths of Your Word, the truths of Your sovereign, loving care as our Father in Heaven, as we've sung of the eternal depths of Your love that sent Christ to die for our sakes and to rise in triumph and glory on the third day, to sing of He who is very God becoming flesh and humbling Himself as a servant, humbling Himself to the point of the shameful death of the cross, that He might free unworthy sinners such as ourselves from the bondage of sin, from the penalty of sin, from the condemnation of the law. Father, as we've entered into these wonderful blessings and privileges, we also pray for eager hearts as we now seek to examine Your Word not just to examine it for the sake of our intellect, but to be changed and transformed by Your Word. Father, we pray for Your Holy Spirit. Send Him to be our teacher. Lord, our minds are in darkness until Your Spirit breaks our night and gives us the light of Your Word. So we pray for His help and His ministry. Pray that You would give us Attentive hearts and minds, free us from distractions. 
Lord, heaven and earth will pass away, but Your Word will never pass away. How important is Your Word? Help us to treat it with the weightiness that it deserves. Help us to focus all of our energy upon hearing from God as You have spoken to us in Your Scripture. Father, transform Your people. We pray for our church. We pray that You would grow us in grace, all of us. From the newest believer to the oldest saint, all of us, Father, have so much room for growth in our Christian life. We all stumble in so many ways. We pray, instruct us, transform our wills and our hearts and our affections. May they be more uh, strongly knit to Christ and His Word. And we also pray, Father, this morning for any who are here who don't know Christ. Whether they are conscious that they do not know Christ or whether they're deceived and think that they know Him, Father, teach them savingly by Your Spirit through Your Word. Open the eyes of their hearts. Cause them to see their need of Christ. Cause them to see the rebellion of their own hearts and their desperate need of Your sovereign grace to free them from themselves that they might trust in Christ and know the safety and the peace of peace with God and forgiveness of sin through Christ Jesus our Lord. Father, be our help, we pray. Draw near to us. Grow us in grace, we pray. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we pick up again this morning in John chapter 7 as we've been for the last uh, uh, few weeks. Jesus, remember uh, the context here, Jesus has gone up to the Feast of Tabernacles privately. Uh, He has refused the kind of entrance that his brothers wanted for him, the kind of entrance that would have gained him worldly and earthly pomp and glory. However, at the middle of the feast, he does, as we saw last week, make himself known. At the middle of the feast, he takes the ruler's position as teacher... And he begins to teach the people, both defending his identity as the one sent from the Father and defending that his doctrine is from the Father, and also going on the offense and confronting the leaders for their wicked hypocrisy in seeking his life. And this morning we pick up, still in that context, there's this public disruption And there is a division among the people about Christ. And this morning what we see in these verses is the reaction of yet another group to to, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, let's begin our exposition this morning in verse 25. And then secondly, we'll turn to our doctrine and our application. But first of all, let's consider our exposition beginning in verse 25. John continues to write, Now some of them from Jerusalem said, Is this not he whom they seek to kill? Now if you remember back to verse 20, after Jesus asked the leaders why why they sought to kill him, you remember the crowd responded, You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? In other words, they thought it was crazy that Jesus thought that some were trying to kill him. But here you've got this group who are well aware that the rulers want his life. Now, here's how I think we should understand that. It seems that the group in verse 20 before 
are probably pilgrims who have traveled to the feast from outside Jerusalem, and therefore they wouldn't have been aware of the leaders' plots against Christ. But here John singles out a specific group. Notice he says, some of them from Jerusalem. Literally, the Jerusalemites. These are the natives of the city. They live here. They have heard the hype. They've been around. They've heard the commotion. And they are well aware of the plot the leaders have against Christ. And by the way that these Jerusalemites frame the questions here, as Matthew Henry puts it, they are, as it were, they are irritating their leaders to put their plan into execution. In other words, the way they frame these questions is almost like a taunt towards their leaders. Is this not the man that they seek to kill? And yet, why do they do nothing? What's stopping them? The leaders have talked a big talk about how this man is a deceiver of the people, and yet here he is sitting in their seat teaching his doctrine openly and boldly, and they say nothing to him. And what what has happened here is the leaders have got themselves into an interesting situation. The leaders have bred this contempt towards Christ into the hearts of these people, and now these people are themselves outrunning the leaders, even the leaders, in their zealous opposition to Christ. Um, And I'm sure that this infuriated the rulers, but probably not as much as this next jab they take at them. They not only point out that the leaders are doing nothing to stop Christ, but they ask this question, do the rulers know indeed that this is truly the Christ? And in in Greek, this question anticipates a negative answer. Um, It's something like, surely the rulers are not convinced that this is the Christ. But what what the Jerusalemites here are essentially pointing out is, by the way our leaders are acting... They're giving people reason to think that our leaders have changed their mind about this man and that they are now wanting to become this man's disciples. And there's very few things that would have infuriated these rulers more than that statement. For instance, in chapter 9 of John's Gospel, verse 27, we'll get there in a bit, you remember the man, or you're familiar with the man born blind, whom Jesus heals, and after the leaders have interrogated the man endlessly, the man gets frustrated with them and irritated with them because they just won't stop asking him, what happened to you? And he says to them, I told you already, but you would not listen. Do you also want to become his disciples? That was a jab towards the rulers. And they reviled him as a response and they threw him out of the synagogue. But these Jews call into question the, uh, the leader's assessment by the way that they're acting towards Christ and letting Him go on teaching. Then in verse 27, they assert their judgment. And, and it's, it's as if they're saying this, though the leaders appear to have gone soft on this man, we are still resolute in our conclusion that this is not the Christ because we have this proof against Him. Verse 27, they say, however, we know where this man is from, but when the Christ comes, no one knows where he is from. Now, this is, this is a very interesting statement 
First of all, they say, we know where this man is from. Now, that's the easy part to understand what they mean. When they say, we know where this man is from, what they mean is, we know that this man is from Galilee, like they'll say in verse 41. We know this is the carpenter's son. This is Mary's son. We know where he hails from. Now, obviously, we know that that's not the whole story, and they're They are inaccurate in some of their assumptions, and Christ will reprove them for that in a moment. But that's not hard to understand why they say, we know where this man comes from. They're referring to his coming from Galilee. But why do they say, but when the Christ comes, no one knows where he is from? One possibility is that this group of Jerusalemites is just totally ignorant of the Scriptures. Because the Old Testament Scriptures don't say that no one will know where the Christ is from. But that seems highly unlikely to me. Not only because, remember, these are Jerusalemites. right? They're in the hub of Israel's religion. But also explicitly in this chapter, if you notice in verse 42, they are saying, has not the Scripture said that the Christ comes from the seed of David and from the town of Bethlehem? So, I mean, that was common Jewish knowledge. And and they knew that the Old Testament does give indications of something of where the Messiah will come from. That he will come from the seed of David and from the town of Bethlehem, where David was from. Which, unbeknownst to them, both of those were true of Christ. And so, you take those things together, it would make sense if their objection went like this. Well, we know the Scriptures say that the Christ comes from Bethlehem, not Galilee. But that's not what they say. Instead, they say, when the Christ comes, no one knows where He comes from. It's kind of a head-scratcher. Here's what I think is going on here. I think this is yet another example of the irony that John so often highlights in his Gospel. They were so close to the truth and yet still so far from Christ. Okay, This is what I think is going on here. They obviously know something of the earthly origins of Messiah. Right? He comes from seed of David, town of Bethlehem. But they also seem to be indicating here that they know that the origins of Messiah at the same time will be extraordinary origins. That it, he, when he comes, it will be something beyond just a regular carpenter's son, raised by a mom and dad just like any other Israelite. And maybe in their minds, they're thinking of texts like Isaiah 7, that Messiah will be born of a virgin. Or the prophet Micah, the Messiah's goings forth will be from everlasting. In other words, it seems that they know that There's more to Messiah than just a regular descendant of David from Bethlehem. And they know that there will be mystery about his origins. And the reason that that's ironic is that he's standing right in front of them. The man from heaven. And if they would but ask him, he would explain so that they might understand. But they've already dismissed him because of his earthly origin. And Jesus now uses their own words to both affirm something of what they said is true and to rebuke them. 
beginning in verse 28. Then Jesus cried out. So he gets louder at this point in his proclamation. He cried out as he taught in the temple saying, You both know me and you know where I am from. And I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. But I know him, for I am from him, and he sent me. What Jesus is saying here to these Jerusalemites is, on the one hand, you know me, and on the other hand, you don't know me. This is the same thing we saw last week. They are judging according to appearances. They are drawing unjust and premature conclusions. And he's saying, you know me according to the flesh. You assume that I'm the son of Joseph. And that you assume that I was born in Nazareth. And he knows they're wrong about that. But he says, you don't know me truly because you don't know my Father who sent me. You are blinded by your prejudice such that you cannot see because you will not see. If they had been fair to the entirety of the Old Testament, if they had had the humility to admit that there is mystery in the way that Christ is described, they could have held these things loosely and come to Him asking. But instead, they they make up their mind in their stubborn prejudice. Because the Old Testament describes Christ in both ways. It describes Him according to His divine nature. His goings forth are from everlasting. He shall be called mighty God. And, like Isaiah 53, it describes Him according to His human nature. A shoot from the stump of Jesse who will have no form of comeliness that we should desire Him. And he's saying to them, you guys are excluding the possibility of the one on the basis of the other. And if they would but have inquired, instead of being right in their own eyes and wise in their own eyes, he could tell them how these things fit together. He says, you know me in a very surface level according to the flesh way, but you don't know him who sent me into the world in the first place. You don't know where the Son of Man was before. He says, I have not come of Myself, but He who sent Me is true, whom you do not know. This is a parallel to Romans chapter 3. Remember Romans chapter 3, where Paul says, let God be true, though every man be a liar. Jesus is saying, regardless of your prejudice and unbelief and rejection... I am from the one whom you do not know who sent me and he is true. Your unbelief does not settle the matter. My Father has sent me, Messiah, into the world according to the Scriptures just as he promised. It all jives perfectly well with the Old Testament if you would inquire into it. But you don't recognize me because you don't know God. And in verse 29, he says, But I know him, for I am from him, and he sent me. And this angered this group. This angered these Jerusalemites. Verse 30 says, Therefore they sought to take him, 
But no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Now that word take there, in fact, if you have the ESV, it, it expands on it, and I think rightly, rightly so. It means they sought to take him into custody. They, because of these words, sought the Lord Jesus. They sought his arrest, and they sought him to be charged and done away with. On what charges exactly, we're not told. Probably blasphemy for saying and indicating that he knows God in a unique way. Just like chapter 5. And so they seek to lay hold of him, grasp him, take him. But following those words are are these glorious words from John. But no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. By the restraint of an invisible power, they were kept from carrying out their evil desires. And we see here that the hand of God in providence restrains Christ's enemies in order to preserve Him until His appointed hour. We'll talk about that more in our doctrine. Verse 31, as we close out our exposition, And many of the people believed in Him and said, When the Christ comes, will He do more signs than these which this man has done? Now, Commentators go both ways on this concluding statement in terms of the belief of these, some of these. Um, it's possible that this is another occasion of spurious faith. Like we saw, you remember chapter 2. When chapter 2, it says, many believed in Jesus, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself, himself to them. But I tend to think that this actually is a sincere belief here. Now, it certainly isn't the strongest confession of faith in in John's Gospel. It certainly isn't on the level of the Samaritans or like Peter at the end of chapter 6. You have the words of eternal life. To whom shall we go? But it does seem to at least be an expression of weak faith. Even though it's focused on his signs. And it seems to indicate something of at least an inward persuasion in some of their minds that this man is indeed the Christ. And that's what contributes and sets the stage for the rest of this chapter as we will see this divide among the people and the difference of opinion about Christ. And so that concludes our our exposition this morning. Let's turn our attention now to our doctrine and our application. And I've combined these this morning. Sometimes it's easier that way, especially for time's sake. Doctrine, how are we instructed by this text? We've seen what it means what God is saying, what happened. But how are we now theologically, doctrinally, practically instructed, and what are the practical implications of that for a Christian's life? I have three things that I want to bring out this morning. Three things, and I'll give them to you as we go. Number one, first, doctrinal instruction and application. We are instructed here about a certain pitfall. That can come with having influence. Okay? We are instructed in this passage about a particular pitfall that can come with having influence. And I'll explain what I mean. And I'm getting this this application from my interpretation of the posture of the Jerusalemites here. Okay? And commentators differ here. If you differ from me, that's if you differ on. How, what you think the attitude of these Jerusalemites is, we can talk about that. 
I do think that Matthew Henry and others are persuasive when they see this group not just asking sincere questions like, is it possible our leaders know that this is the Christ? But rather, by the way they frame the questions, I think that these, they are saying these things from a frustrated zeal to see their leaders act and to see this man dealt with and silenced. Now, where did these Jerusalemites get such a deep-seated zeal of opposition against Christ in the first place? Well, it was sown into them by the rulers and the authorities. In their sermons, probably. I mean, you think about it. It's been a couple years now of Jesus' ministry. What do you think they've been receiving, the Jerusalemites, in the diet of their preaching? Probably in the rabbi's sermons, in the Sunday, uh, Sabbath, not Sunday, Sabbath discussions, what these Jerusalemites were getting was no doubt a steady diet of anti-Jesus and anti-Christ rhetoric. Don't think that they just remained silent when Christ went into Galilee. And now what we have here, in a sense, is that that sowing into the hearts of their people has backfired on them And they've created a monster that they can no longer control. They're now being pressured by their own disciples. Why don't the leaders do something about this man? And it's here that Jesus' words from Matthew 23, 15 apply to the rulers. Where he describes the scribes and Pharisees and he says, you guys travel across land and sea to make one proselyte and when you make a proselyte, you make them twice the son of hell as yourselves. That seems to be what's going on here with the people. And here's the lesson. The impressionable student, often with unbridled zeal, often takes things further than even their own teachers take them. And therefore, those with influence must exercise that influence with caution and carefulness. Now, I'll give you some examples, just practically speaking, of how this applies to the Christian life. I'll give you you one example from the start. Take, I'm going to give you two categories, young children and young Christians, regardless of age, for the young Christians. Both of those groups are very impressionable. They they are malleable. They're like a sponge. And they usually hang on every word of those whom they respect, whether it's a child with their parents, or whether it's a new Christian with their pastor or their or their pastors or their you know other mature believers. Um, And that's a good thing. That, that um, impressionable, being impressionable, that's a good thing because they're easily taught and instructed. But teachers and those of influence need to be careful with that. Okay. For instance, let's take that situation. Let's say you're sitting around the table um, enjoying a nice Sunday dinner and let's say you've got your 13-year-old there at the table and you've got um, a brand new believer from the church. Um, and there's a group of mature saints sitting around the table and they're all discussing a, 
uh, particular theological concept. And the others are kind of just flies on the wall listening intently in to what these more mature saints are talking about. And at a point, certain point in the discussion, one of the mature saints, maybe a pastor, makes the offhand joke and says something like, well, you know, those, those charismatics, they're all just, you know, heretics, they're just all wacky. And everyone has a good chuckle, everyone just thinks, you know, no harm, no foul, just having fun here. Until later that night, as you're getting ready to go to bed, you, you, know, you check into Facebook world one final time, and you see a post that one of the more impressionable guests at your dinner has just posted in which they are absolutely going on a rampage against charismatics. Right? And they're you know, lumping all of them together, and they're just all equally dangerous and false teachers, and they're calling everyone to ban anyone who's not just a strict cessationist. And you're sitting there and you're cringing as you read it because you're realizing that the seed that germinated into that post was the unnuanced joke told around the dinner table. Right? James's words apply to, to us here, all of us, when he says, don't many of you be teachers for they will undergo a stricter judgment. There's an application of that to everyone, of the sobriety with which teachers and those of influence must carry out that position. This applies, I think, of in particular, in our day, in our context, things like podcasts have absolutely blown up in popularity. It seems like every day there's a new Christian podcast that everyone is supposed to apparently just follow, um, you know, just every day something new is coming out. We live in a, a world of hugely popular Bible teachers and um, commentators. There's a lot of responsibility that goes with that. There's a lot of responsibility on the shoulders of those who have those positions. Personally, I don't really like a lot of that culture that's got into the church, but nonetheless, it's a reality. And those in those positions of influence need to handle it with carefulness in how they speak. And they need to think about the potential kind of disciples that they might be unwittingly creating. I'll give you a second example, uh, more specific to young kids, in terms of this being careful with how we use our influence over those who are impressionable. Specifically with young kids... Um, young children. Uh, we don't, in our family, we don't hide from our kids some of the more, um, I don't know what you'd call them, some of the more unpopular beliefs in our day. Um, some of the things that some people might be afraid that their child might make an awkward comment in the wrong context. Um, for instance, when it comes to false forms of Christianity, uh, we don't hide from our children the reality that the Roman Catholic Church is a false church. Um, they've also seen me have interactions with Jehovah's Witnesses. And in particular, one of the things I remember that has struck my children is that they know Dad doesn't... I don't shake the hands of Jehovah's Witnesses when they come to my door. I don't welcome them into my house um, like I would a, a fellow believer because I believe that they're false prophets. And 
My children have seen that and they've picked up on that. Dad has some lines he draws with these types of people, which is good, I think, for our kids to understand. But at the same time, if that's all my kids ever saw, and that's all, I never talked about it with them with any more nuance, they could very easily come to the conclusion that, well, as Christians, our posture is just that we hate Roman Catholics and we hate Jehovah's Witnesses, and you, you name it, all the other groups. Uh, they could walk away with the impression we, we don't have anything to do with them. Um, they're all equally workers of the devil. And that can easily become their default thought process towards others ensnared in false religion. We need to nuance those things in our children's minds. We need to give them categories. We need to impart wisdom so that we don't just unwittingly, I'm not saying that we would do this on purpose, but so that we don't unwittingly produce just a bunch of angry kids who hates everyone who isn't just you know, perfectly Reformed Baptist. But instead, to train kids who know how to stand in righteousness on the one hand, and yes, to draw lines, but at the same time, to have the nuance and categories to understand that we need to minister to those who are ensnared in false religion. Or briefly, just another third example of this. How about with issues of liberty, uh, liberty of conscience and difference of opinion? Parents have the role of instructing and training the conscience of their kids according to the Scriptures. And parents also have the liberty to make certain rules for their household that are not necessarily scripturally binding, but it's, this is how our household is going to function. For instance, let's say you're a family, uh, let's say you're a family who doesn't drink alcohol in your, in your household. And that's perfectly fine. That's your liberty just as much as another family is free to set another rule. But here's the danger. If your kids constantly get the impression, and if we're not careful to guard against this impression, even if it's never explicitly communicated, but it's just kind of the culture of the home that we know that other families who do drink are either not as wise or less than or you name it. Here's what can happen. Even though with you as a parent in your generation, you, you know that this is just a preference issue. Well, with your children in their generation, it, become, it can become more of a hard-lined opposition. And suddenly they have moral convictions attached to this practice. And now, maybe in their generation, now it's questionable whether anyone who drinks alcohol can be a Christian, and they certainly you know, can't hold office as, as a deacon or a pastor in a church. And it's those types of things we need to be aware of. We need to be cautious in the use of our influence other, uh, over others and use wisdom as we exert our influence over others under our charge. So that's the, that's the first point of instruction and application is the pitfall we see here of what has happened between these rulers and those that they've influenced and how they have taken it even further than the rulers. That brings us to the second point of doctrine and application. Second point this morning. We are warned about the dangers of prejudice. Okay? 
We're warned about the dangers of prejudice. And I'm bringing this out this morning, not, I mean, I am, if you're here this morning and this is you, and you're guilty of the kind of prejudice against the Christian faith that these Jerusalemites were, then I am speaking to you. But I'm also talking to you, Christian, to train you, to train us, to instruct us on how to be aware and spot prejudice and how to encourage and exhort people in our evangelism to put off prejudice and to evaluate Christianity with honesty and integrity. Consider the prejudice here in these these Jews. And this is not new in the Gospel of John. We've seen this over and over again. We saw this theme last week. These Jerusalemites have judged a matter before they hear it. We know where this man comes from. And when the Christ comes, no one knows where he is from. And therefore, this man cannot be the Christ. And they are just so assured that this one thing that they can't piece together completely discredits Jesus as the Christ. And they have no interest in inquiring. They are not asking questions. They are not asking to be corrected. They have made up their mind. And here's the thing, Christian. The thing is, they are wrong. And they are disqualifying themselves from eternal life because of their stubborn prejudice. And Christian, there's nothing new under the sun. Sinners, because they are lovers of darkness, chapter 3, this is what we do. Right? They don't come to the light, but what do they do? They seek to hide in the darkness lest their evil deeds be exposed. Sinners are actively looking for ways to remain in darkness. And one of the ways that they do that, there's a whole plethora of ways... One of the ways is that they are happy to latch on to any surface level objection if it serves their purpose of justifying their unbelief in the gospel. Now, it might look different in our context most of the time because usually we're not dealing with people who embrace the inspiration of the Old Testament like these Jews. But nonetheless, the heart issue remains the same. For example, I'll give you several of these. For example... I know that the Bible cannot be true because it is filled with contradictions. Right? How many of us have heard that? And you just respond, really? Tell me about them. Tell me about the contradictions. And often you hear something, I mean, unless you're talking to a scholar and someone who really puts time into it, often what you hear is, well, I I can't think of them off the top of my head, but I I know they're in there. (laughs) And then you ask them, well, have you ever read the whole Bible? No. Okay. Have you ever approached these alleged contradictions with the assumption that maybe they're not contradic- contradictions? And have you ever come to them with that assumption and tried to reconcile them the same way you would try to reconcile any other book that you thought had seemingly contradictory statements? Well, no. Okay. So... There could be other explanations than that these are just contradictions, right? Well, no, I'm sure it contradicts itself, right? And then you're back at the beginning. Um, Christian, don't just let people get away with that. And I don't, I don't mean that in a sense of, you know, 
just uh, trying to carnally go after them and make them look like a fool. But for the sake of their own soul, don't just let them get away with things that we'd never let them get away with in any other area of life. We need to lovingly press people. My friend, let's be honest here, you're not being fair. You're not being unbiased. You're judging with partiality. Right? You're already presupposing what you want to be true, and that's what's leading you to your, to your argument. Right? The Lord, Christian, the Lord might use that um, in many ways. It's very possible, especially in our day in which many, many, uh, many people's acquaintance with the Christian faith is so shallow, it's very possible that this person has never had it pointed out to them that they are actually holding the Bible to a standard that they don't hold anything else to. Or it might be an enlightening moment for you to tell them, maybe for the first time, that, you know, our judgment is affected by what we want to be true. And what we desire to be true affects the way we reason and think about things. Right? We need to lovingly point these things out. I'll give you another example. And these are just the low-hanging fruit ones. Obviously, there are more nuanced objections people make. Here's another one. Or the God of the Bible cannot be God because He allowed slavery in the Old Testament. Right? These are the soundbite kinds of things you see. And it just gives people enough, yep, I already, yep, okay, that just gives me enough ammo to not believe in Christianity. Without having even looked into the Old Testament to learn about the different nuances of slavery, for instance, voluntary slavery, they haven't looked into the fact that God actually explicitly forbids man-stealing in the Old, in the Old Testament. But that's enough. Now, God, God allowed slavery, that serves my purpose, therefore, I reject Christianity. Or, Christianity can't be true because God's laws change. Right? You yourself, Christian, admit that what was wrong at one time is now permissible. And what? Is, is God changing? Is what is right today suddenly going to be wrong tomorrow? These are just surface level objections. That first of all, Christian... We need to be equipped in our Bibles and with our Bibles to give an adequate response to those objections. But second of all, we need to be aware of the underlying bias against God that is in their heart that causes them to raise the objections in the first place. Right? It's, it's one thing for someone to sincerely inquire with questions. That, that is not wrong. Right? I will sit for a long time with someone who is sincerely, humbly seeking to just understand how do these things work? Help me understand this. That's one thing. In fact, that's what these Jerusalemites should have done before drawing their conclusion. But it's prejudice when someone is just looking for any way they can to discredit Christ and the Gospel. And no matter how satisfactorily you answered the last question, before you even finished, they're already on to their next objection. And that, Christian, is a window into their biased, prejudiced heart that we need to explore and expose to them. Or a last example on this point. This is very, very common as well. Surface level reason, 
to latch on to in order to reject God and His Word is this. People reject Christ because of their assumptions about what His people should be like. Right? I know, I've talked to many of you, uh, you have family members and friends. This is their, at least according to them, this is one of their main lines of argument and defense. Well, I've heard that Christians have done such and such, and they've done this at this time, and therefore, the whole thing of Christianity is discredited for me. That's not a valid argument for whether Christianity is true or not. Right? We, we talked about that last week with some of the rulers' tactics and their, their arguments that don't follow. Um, First of all, it's possible that whatever they've heard Christians have done, it's possible they weren't even true Christians. That's a very real possibility. But second of all, even if they are right that Christians have done certain things, none of Christ's followers are claiming that Christ's people are perfect people. In fact, that's why we need the gospel. That's why we need Christ. We are not hypocrites but we are those who stumble in many ways. And that doesn't prove that the Christ we have come to believe in is false. It actually gives credence to His words that He came to seek that which was lost. And He came to heal that which was broken. That's the second, second thing. We, we're instructed regarding the dangers of prejudice. And we, Christian, need to be alert to those things to help our unbelieving friends and neighbors and family see how they are reasoning through things. And that brings us thirdly to the last, last thing, doctrine and application. Thirdly and finally, we are instructed here on the immortality of God's servants until their appointed hour. We're instructed on the immortality of God's servants until their appointed hour. I'm getting this from verse 30. Therefore they sought to take him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Glorious truth here. All the hatred, the deep-seated hatred that was in these men's hearts and all their evil desire to do Christ harm, none of that could hasten the hour of Christ's death by one second. And until God the Father's appointed hour struck and Christ willingly and voluntarily bowed His head in obedience to His Father's will, Christ was immortal until His hour had come. Men could not destroy Him. Satan could not destroy Him. And Christian... That has glorious application to us as God's people. Like Christ, right, in both His sufferings and God's protection, this is true. Christian, like Christ, we too, no matter how meekly and wisely we seek to conduct ourselves, we will find ourselves the object of scorn of those who hate our message. That's one of the ways that we are conformed into the image of Christ and we follow Christ and take up our cross after Him. That shouldn't surprise us. However, 
we must always remember that God has the wicked in a chain. And no matter the strength of desire in them to do us harm and to do us evil and to do us wrong, they can do no more than what God has ordained them to do. Matthew Henry says, he says, the malice of persecutors is impotent even when it is most impetuous. And then he says this in classic Henry style, when Satan fills their hearts, God ties their hands. Isn't that an incredible comfort? We are immortal until our work is done. And Christian, it's amazing. Sometimes, maybe even often, but at least sometimes God protects His people in indiscernible and inexplainable ways. That neither the persecutors themselves nor we even understand why don't they do the evil they want to do and could do, but some reason don't do? That's what seems to be the case here. It says, they sought to take him, but no one laid a hand on him. John doesn't elaborate on how does that happen exactly. But it's not like Jesus was surrounded by an army or an entourage here and that they physically couldn't lay a hand on him. I mean, he is here in their country. He's literally surrounded by enemies. The very ones who will kill uh, kill him eventually. I mean, did God... I don't... Just speculation. Did God suddenly create a conflict in their own mind in which something like the guards in verse 42... You know, they, they, couldn't, they refused to take him because they said no one spoke like this man. Did all of a sudden they have a conflict? Did they come under conviction? That a realization all of a sudden of this man has actually done us no harm? Why are we trying to kill him? We're, we're not told. But by some hidden power, of, uh, the power, hidden power of God, they are restrained. It reminds me just give, give you, an, uh, not an analogy, an example from church history. It reminds me more than any mission, other missionary that I've read of John G. Patton. John G. Patton, I've talked about him before. I've quoted various um, elements of his life. John G. Patton was a missionary to, the, to cannibals in the New Hebrides. And without hyperbole, John G. Patton was just about always in danger almost just never was in a peaceful, peaceful place with peace on all sides. Um, his life being in jeopardy, it was just a, a commonplace occurrence. For instance, he would walk about his, his little you know, property, just going about his day's work, and all of a sudden he would look up and he would realize that one of the tribe's people is just sitting there with his musket pointed right at Patton, just following him along. And Patton would just go on his... Daily tasks. Um, at other times, all of a sudden he would be ambushed, as it were, at his hut by uh, the whole tribes with their muskets drawn and their machetes drawn and pointed at Patton and he would just walk about them, talking to them and lecturing them on how they were so ungrateful to him. Time and time again this happened to him. One time... One of the natives pretended, uh, pretended to be sick and, because they knew that 
the missionary had medicine. He had, he had often ministered to people in their sickness. One of the, the tribes people pretended to be sick, and they called on Missy, the missionary, and he comes to administer the medicine to help this man, and all of a sudden realizes that it's an ambush. And they all draw their machetes, and they are all taunting one another, urging one another for the other to take the first blow at Patton. This is what Patton wrote in his autobiography about that moment. He said, My heart rose up to the Lord Jesus. I saw him watching all the scene. My peace came back to me like a wave from God. I realized that I was immortal till my master's work with me was done. The assurance came to me as if a voice out of heaven had spoken that not a musket would be fired to wound us, not a club prevail to strike us, not a spear leave the hand in which it was held vibrating to be thrown, not an arrow leave the bow or a killing stone the fingers without the permission of Jesus Christ, who is all power in heaven and on earth. He rules all nature, animate and inanimate, and restrains even the savage of the South Seas. And there's countless other testimonies of John, of John G. Patton saying very similar things. Psalm 91. You shall not be afraid by the terror, or of the terror by night, nor of the arrows that fly by day. A thousand may fall at your side, and ten thousand at your right hand, but it shall not befall you. Because you have made the Lord who is my refuge, even the Most High, your dwelling place. Christian, this simple short application. The Lord will prolong and strengthen the days of all of His people as long as He has work left for them to do. No Christian was taken out of this world prior to the time appointed by God. And all the powers of hell all the powers of man on earth can try as they may, but they will not prevail against us individually and against Christ's church until we have finished our testimony. You think of Revelation 11 and the two witnesses. The church whose testimony cannot be silenced. And so Christian, make the Lord your dwelling place. Take fresh courage. And serve Him without fear. Serve Him as the one who will prolong your days as long as is needed for you to glorify Him for His name's sake. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for the Gospel of John. We pray, Father, instruct us in Your Word. Be with us as Your people. May we all grow in grace and wisdom. May we grow in our understanding of Your perfect will and that which is pleasing to You. Father, be gracious to us. We pray that You would be faithful, as You always have been, to continue to expose to us the remaining areas of where we walk inconsistently, where we walk in foolishness, Lord, where we walk in presumption or in ignorance, 
Father, please expose those things. Help us to grow that we might walk more purely and consistently with You. That we might glorify You more wholeheartedly with all of our lives and all of our hearts and our minds. Father, thank You for Your grace to us in Christ. Thank You for His life and death and resurrection which saves us. He is the grounds of all of our hope. We pray, Father, cause us to have more love for Christ, to serve Him without fear, as He, without fear and with full courage, faced even His enemies in their own home country, as He went on speaking. We pray, Father, that we would go on speaking, not fearing those who would do evil to us. Lord, let us remember that the devil is Your servant, that he is Your devil, that He only does what You permit Him to do, and that those who walk according to the power of the devil are in Your hand and Your grip as well. Father, cause us never to forget that. We thank You that Christ has bound the strong man, that Your Gospel is plundering from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. We pray that we would, with fresh courage, serve Him. Help us this week. Help us as our brother Aaron prayed for our evangelism, our faithfulness as witnesses. Let us not be ashamed of the gospel. Let us be those who are not ashamed to have the words of Christ on our lips. His words will stand forever. They will not pass away. Let us not fear man who is here today and gone tomorrow, who is like the stubble. But Father, we pray that we would stand on the everlasting word And that we would be confident in it. Be gracious to us, we pray, Father. Bless our fellowship time. Bless the food that we will eat. Give us thankful hearts as we spend time in Christian fellowship. And bless us for our afternoon service as well, we pray. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.